word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us during National Poetry Month. We're back in the valley after our road trip to Tucson last episode. Coming up on this edition of Word, we'll talk to poet and ASU Associate Professor of English, Sally Ball. She's got a new collection of poems entitled Hold Sway. I can remember standing in the junior high school library looking at the poetry section and down sort of low there was Sylvia Plath, only woman on the shelf, and I sort of vowed that I was going to add a second female name to that shelf. Plus, aspiring teacher and freshman Sun Devil poet Austin Davis joins us. I believe that poetry is really what makes us human. It helps us slow down and appreciate our lives and the world we all share. And I really believe that poetry is needed more than ever in 2019 because poetry gives us a look into another perspective. But first, new research is looking into how our brains understand and interpret metaphors, the building blocks or DNA of poetry. My broadcasting colleague Mark Brody, who is a co-host of KJZZ's original production, The Show, sat down with Vicki Lai. She's an assistant professor in the Cognitive Science Program at the University of Arizona's Psychology Department and has been working on this subject matter. Mark began by asking Vicki what exactly she was trying to figure out. Well, the initial question is whether we comprehend metaphoric language differently compared to uh, literal language. Traditionally, metaphor is viewed as a figure of speech in literature research. But these days, and when I say these days, it's pretty much in the past 20 years or 30 years or so, uh, we view metaphor as something that we use in everyday language. For instance, you can say, I had a rough day. And rough is kind of a physical sensation, a tactile sensation, and we use that to talk about how the day goes. And likewise, we use kind of an action kind of verbs like grasping to describe, you know, the students can grasp the idea. And that to us is a form of metaphor. So we're looking at uh, these types of metaphor and see if uh, we use sensory motor systems, uh, that is sensory motor cortices to understand language. Is this a way of trying to figure out if people really understand what is metaphorical and what is maybe literal? Yeah. Well, um, so we are touching upon the theory of how is language understood. So uh, people would say classic language areas in the brain would be responsible for language processing. And here we're saying that we're actually using kind of a distributed uh, representations in the brain to understand language. We're using the sensory system, we're using the motor system, and we're using, for instance, the emotion system as well to understand language. So what did you find? I mean, how do our brains interpret metaphors? So in our study, we uh, looked at exactly grasp an idea, this type of metaphor. And we found that it's not just the classic language areas, it's also the uh, motor system that gets involved in understanding this type of metaphor. And in addition, we find the timing of it. So previous studies use imaging techniques such as fMRI, which have great, great uh, spatial resolution, but it lacks temporal precision. So 
people could argue that well, it could be that it's the language area that's activated, which then spreads this activation to sensory motor systems. But using ERPs, we can answer this question by showing that well, the sensory and motor cortices are activated quite early, rapidly at 0.2 seconds, and therefore. That argues for the necessity of these regions in kind of an abstract language understanding. What does that tell you? Well, that tells us a lot of things. That tells us that language is kind of embodied. It is not、uh, just something too abstract, as the paper title suggests. That it's actually metaphor. What we think something that's very abstract is actually、uh, concrete. We're relying on concrete resources. To understand the abstract part of meaning, but are we actually understanding what people are saying? Like, for example, if you say, "Did so and so grasp an idea?" or somebody's grasping at straws, are our brains actually thinking of our hands trying to grab onto something, or are our brains really thinking about and understanding what the person is saying to us? That's actually exactly what we're going for. Is that we think that we actually the brain is thinking you're grasping something physically, if not physically, it's visually imagining that motion being carried out. Does that help us to understand what the person is actually saying, or is that an impediment? It is actually a facilitation, according to、uh, these findings. What do you plan to do with these findings? Like, what? How will they help people understand? You know, sort of how brains work or how language works. So、um, this sets of studies are more of、uh, basics research. So our current work is to kind of try to find a way to use metaphor to help with learning, and to use metaphor to help with a person's emotion. So with regards to the learning aspect, so we've developed、uh, metaphors for science concepts. Science concepts are abstract, and in this case, we're thinking that metaphors might help. So we're measuring、uh, brain waves of undergraduates uh, learning uh, these abstract concepts metaphorically and literally, and see if there's something there that can tell us whether they have improved learning after metaphorically reasoning of these words. So, if you're using a metaphor to try to help somebody understand, for example, an abstract scientific concept, if you're using a metaphor, which in in many ways is sort of, as we've talked about, sort of a, a, a verb, an action word that our our mind can interpret as something it understands, is、mm-hmm. it easy to take that and then use it to understand a more abstract scientific or any other kind of concept? Our preliminary data show that this is the case, and we found that undergrads. Graduates, they did improve、uh, after a metaphorically trend with this learning of the science concepts. And in our EEG data, we also showed that metaphorically taught science concepts show a enriched semantic representation. So in that sense, I think it does help. But we need to do more work to see if that's the case. That was Vicky Lai talking to my colleague Mark Brody. Coming up. After a quick break, Mesa poet Austin Davis reads from his collection "Cloudy Days, Still Nights." You're listening to Word. Bring the radio home with you and never miss a minute of your favorite programs. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. I'm Robin Young. I'm Jeremy Hobson. It's here and now. Use all the features on your smart speaker to get the latest news updates and the best shows on public radio. It's easy. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon.
Austin Davis is a Mesa poet, activist, and aspiring teacher. He has performed his poetry all over Arizona and is currently studying creative writing at Arizona State University. His first two books, Cloudy Days, Still Nights, and Second Civil War were published by Moran Press in 2018. I began our conversation by asking him about how poetry and activism intersects. I performed at the March for Our Lives Youth Summit in 2018, and that was one of the most impactful events of my life because I got to meet a lot of the Parkland students as well, and I got to talk to them. And, you know, I performed my poetry, and it kind of made me realize that, you know, this is how I can make a difference. You know, I can put my passion for these social issues and my passion for poetry together and perform it and hopefully give people another perspective. According to a recent survey, and this is out from last year, the National Endowment for the Arts has some interesting research that says that poetry reading in the United States has risen dramatically. Well, you know, I could read the report to folks, but there are several indicators. One of them is a rise in spoken word poetry. Do you write for your material to be read? Because not everybody does. Not everybody's comfortable, in fact, getting up in front of an audience. It kind of depends on what I'm writing. I read a lot of slam poetry as well. And slam poetry is meant, I think all poetry is meant to be spoken aloud. But I think that slam poetry is especially meant to be performed. I just try to get my heart down on the page. And that's the biggest goal for me is to get what I want to say down on the page. And what happens next is different. And sometimes poems may have a great deal more resonance with people when they are performed. Yeah. You know, people might get a better indication of what a poet was trying to get across. Not that an audience can't come up with their own impressions of things. And of course, when a poet or any writer releases something to the universe, if you will, sometimes they have things that they didn't intend that, you know, come across and mean other things than they had intended, of course. But that's kind of the way that the the cookie crumbles, if you will. I wondered if we could talk then a little bit more about your collection. Cloudy Days, Still Nights is one of them, and the other is called called Second Civil War. I wondered if you could read a selection, one of your favorites from that. Yeah, of course, definitely. Uh, This poem is called The Day We Say Forever, I'll Say. The day we say forever, I'll say I love the way we zone out during the most useless parts of the day to watch the rain wash down our windows, wondering whether Dickinson or Whitman ever imagined a little universe bursting into existence in every raindrop like we do. When the Big Bang plays over and over again within the rain, each droplet breaking and unbreaking until one planet gets it right, we both know it's more momentous than earning minimum wage. You smile and I smile as you appear in the doorway like a breath of dandelions. The sun takes its final curtsy to the crowd of clouds and I flap the wings hidden beneath my button-up. Rip these pages from its notebook under the purple sky and we'll stuff them in our chests next to the antique pens. Let me see that certain glow of yours that you and Hermione share when you're both in the library, and I'll understand more and more that most men will never really know the true definition of beauty. Stand on the tip of your toes and meet me in that surreal field of white flowers where none of anything really matters. With your chin in rest on my chest, I'll notice that you've left eraser shavings next to the faint pencil marks that used to be my jagged edges. You'll take a deep breath and exhale the day's stresses like cigarette smoke, whispering histories and philosophies from every different dimension into my ear. For that brief instant, I'll step away from the smell of green tea on your skin to stare into the blue and yellow solar system behind your eyes. All of our friends, 
everyone from the birds swimming in the trees to the grass and circles around our feet not in agreement that we've both been counting down in our heads like two rockets before liftoff, ever since our first slow dance under that big tree when you showed me how to drink from the stars from down on Earth. That's Austin Davis, a poet and student at ASU, and he's kind enough to join us here on Word. One of the things that I first, of course, recognize are the names that you dropped there early on in the poem, uh, Dickinson, I'm assuming Emily Dickinson, yeah. and uh, Walt Whitman. And I can definitely hear some faint echoes of Whitman in your verse, the length of line, for instance. I just wonder about inspirations of those poets for you. Dickinson, I would say, of course, uses much more compaction in her writing and a lot of dashes. Punctuation is super important, right, for Dickinson, not so much for Whitman. So I'm just kind of curious about the influences of those uh, two poets on you personally. Dickinson definitely influenced the form that I write. And I think that, yeah, she's had a tremendous impact on on my form. But um, Walt Whitman was actually the first free verse poet that I ever read. And I remember... Um, I was in Indiana, and I bought um, an old uh, Walt Whitman collected poems, and I remember reading that and then um, writing one of my first poems. So I think that both of these poets have had a profound impact on, on my writing style. A couple other things that jump out to me are the colors in the poetry and yeah. a clear sense of, of emotions. Um, this persona, not that it's necessarily you, and we have to remind folks that the speaker in a poem is not necessarily the poet themselves, right? Do you find that you do kind of take on a universality as a speaker, or do you write a little closer to the vest, closer to the heart? I think it definitely depends on the poem. For this poem, it's it's very close to my heart. You know, this is a very personal poem, and in this poem, I really just wanted to show the vibrance of love and the vibrance of young love. So this poem was very close to me, but it, it really depends on the poem, I think, because as a writer, you know, it's you can put yourself in another perspective and you can kind of write from a different point of view sometimes. Right. And um, I think life experience is something, of course, that helps you grow beyond maybe more of a first person approach. Not that you might not use first person, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the I in a poem is you, if right, that makes right. sense, yeah. <laughs> to mix pronouns there. Um, just as long as we're not mixing metaphors. That's a bad thing. I got to think that it was a very deep investigation of your, you know, emotions and your feelings to get that much work out. Yeah, you know, poetry has always been like therapy to me. And writing this book was kind of my first big experience with that because I'd been writing poems since about sixth grade. Um, but this is this is when I really poured my heart into a project. And it, it I learned a lot about myself from writing this book. You know, one of the things I'm always curious about asking folks is what is the role of poetry in 2019? We mentioned that fact that readership is up with respect to poetry, and poetry does different things for different people. Uh, some are more serious about it than others. What do you think one role for poetry is in 2019 and maybe moving through the future? I believe that poetry is, is really what makes us human. Um, it helps us slow down and uh, appreciate our lives and the world we are sh- all share. And I really believe that poetry is needed more than ever in 2019 because poetry gives us a look into another perspective. Uh, It shows us how another human really sees the world. And I think making that connection is such a necessary thing to be able to do. Uh, You know, we're all living on this little blue ball spinning through space. And, you know, we all know how hard it can be in some regard. 
So I think it really helps us be empathetic, which I believe is very necessary today. One of the, the philosophies that I really try to live by is be empathetic in a time where empathy seems much too rare. Being compassionate and empathetic is just a really valuable tool for understanding people who are different from you. And I hold that to the highest standard. And so poetry is something that can do that for folks. I think poetry and any kind of art, you know, I think that's just what art can do. Right. Well, Austin, I think if you continue on this path of writing and wanting to be a teacher, you will do an amazing job at it. You sound like you've got a, a great head on your shoulders. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Coming up after a quick break, we'll talk to ASU Associate Professor of English, Sally Ball, about her new collection of poems. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. KJZZ thanks Allison for donating her Harley-Davidson to support her favorite shows. You can donate your ride, too, by visiting cars.kjzz.org, and thanks. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. A recent study from the National Endowment for the Arts showed poetry readership has nearly doubled in five years. And as a share of the total U.S. adult population, those who reported reading poetry in the survey is the highest on record over the 15 years data has been collected. With that research in mind, I began asking Sally Ball, an associate professor of English at ASU, what she thinks is behind those numbers. I think there's two things. I think first, there's something, um, might even be a little bit mistaken, but people think, oh, a poem is short, and I can click, basically, oftentimes, and I, you know, it'll, it won't take very long. It's a small commitment. And in a time when everybody feels, like, pressed for time, and yet is probably postponing what they <laughs> what else they need to do I think they're more willing to take a look um, and and so our kind of attention uh, increments I serve the idea of poetry pretty well um, and then I also think that almost almost the opposite thing is what's really true about why people keep on reading poetry uh, why they do it more than one time uh, that 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 this short thing that I will click on and I think that's because poetry the whole thing about poetry is that it can cut through the sort of autopilot that we have to stay on to get everything done all day, every day. And, and I think once that happens, and in this short space of giving away your attention, uh, you find that you're sort of really woken up by what you've read because the language is so much more intense usually than language that we're used to hearing and seeing. Right. I believe it was one of your colleagues who said, you know, Everybody has some form of ADD in this, yes. in this day and age, right? And so it might be kind of deceptive at first that you, you, know, you see something short and you think, oh, well, I have time for that. Uh, but it's not always the case once you get into something that may appear short uh, that you only think about it very quickly, right? Right. So, it stays with you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so tell me then a little bit about your background as a poet. When did you first get interested in writing poetry and, and maybe some of your inspirations? Well... I've written poetry I, as long as I can remember, um, and uh, you could call my mom and get the really embarrassing stuff uh, from her. Um, <laughs> but is it something um, that started at a pretty young age? It did. Then? It started. Yeah. I think I was. I think I understood myself as a writer anyway from, you know, incredibly young, and I think that's because I was a huge reader, and um, I think that because I spent so much of my 
uh, time in books when I had some I want to had things I wanted to think about or do something with or understand they, it just seemed perfectly natural to try to write about them and um, and I think that you know when you're when you're very young, you don't really think I'm a poet, I'm a novelist, I'm a playwright. You just you sort of think like writing is something that makes me feel worthy of being alive. It makes me feel better, and um, and that's how I think it starts. And I was a big reader of poetry. I can remember standing in the uh, junior high school uh, library looking at the poetry section, and down sort of low there was Sylvia Plath, only woman on the shelf. And I sort of vowed that I was going to add a second female name <laughs> to that shelf. Um, and then I remember in high school I read Stephen Spender, I read Rupert Brooke, I read Stevie Smith, a lot of British uh, early 20th century British poets, um, which was, I think, just what was on offer in my library at the time. And, uh, you know, Stevie Smith made those uh, wonderful little line drawings, and she's very wry and funny. And um, I read a lot of T.S. Eliot, and I liked the um, um, mixture of emotion and intellect in his work very much. Um, so those are those are all early influences. You're taking poetry back out um, again over the course of this month, which is National Poetry Month, and I would assume uh, hopefully into the summer and whatnot, uh, with a new work yourself. Yes. It's called Hold Sway. Yes. And and give us a little indication as to maybe what some of the moods or um, some of the, the main tropes might be in this. Frequently, the poems are interested in some part of contemporary life that feels menacing. Um, and sometimes that's an environmental uh, anxiety, and sometimes it's um, a, a more um, kind of personal threat. I have a poem about somebody watching uh, filming as the police uh, shoot her husband, Rekia Scott, who was in the news at a couple of summers ago. And I think that as I put the poems together, I realized that I was working on thinking about things that are frightening and that we know are frightening and also things that we're sort of hard-pressed to remember um, when we live in a beautiful place, when you can, you know, uh, be somewhere that makes you think, how can there be any trouble in the environment? Look how beautiful it is here. You know, and, and like this sort of back and forth between the things that we're afraid of and the things that we aren't but maybe should be and trying to find a kind of balanced way of uh, being honest with oneself about the most menacing parts of the world and the ways that you can find a kind of solid stance from which to move into the world despite that menace. Do you have a couple poems that you might share with us? Yeah, sure. Okay, and sure. so this is from the collection Hold Sway. Yes. Uh, our guest is Sally Ball, who's joining us here on Word. I'll start... I'll read you, actually, you know what, I'll read you the epigraph for the book first, and then the first poem. Uh, the epigraph comes from Greta Knudsen, and she was an um, uh, artist and a writer uh, living in France in the early 20th century. Certainty was still alive. The grass didn't fear anything yet. Soon you were going to call. My steps were going to join yours in the living sand. Lots of compaction and lots to to really just take into your mind and and think about. Um, what was the inspiration behind that? Well, I mean that's the that's, that's the epigraph, that's the epigraph from, mm -hmm. from Knudsen, and I liked it because I I think that um, certainty is one of the things that postmodernism took away from us, right? And she begins, certainty was still alive. The grass didn't fear anything yet, and to me that really spoke to 
to the questions uh, about uh, the natural world that are uh, animating some of the poems in this book. Um, uh, the grass wasn't afraid. We weren't afraid that the grass would not be able to grow. Um, soon you were going to call. And the other thing is that the, the poems are, are often poems of intim- personal intimacy and um, and the relationships between the speaker and her kids, the speaker and her beloveds, um, are taking place in this world that is so fraught. And um, and so this uh, little snippet from Knudsen is about waiting for somebody and going to meet them in the living sand, in the wa- near the water, where the grass is unafraid, where everything is okay. Um, and I felt it was sort of beautiful, and also it has that ominous tone that goes hand in hand with the way these poems work, in which they want to be optimistic, they want to be loving, they want to be... Uh, hopeful about the world, and yet they don't want to be delusional. And so the speakers are very often sort of going uh, back and forth between recognizing the dangers and also recognizing the luck and the closeness that we can offer each other. Um, And so then how about a a poem of yours? Sure. The first poem in the book is called Armistice Day, uh, which is a lot like Veterans Day here in Europe, it's, it, it, it remembers the treaty uh, that ended the First World War. And I happened to be in France in the fall of 2015 um, when the attacks at the Bataclan and the Stade de France uh, took place. And those happened just uh, shortly after Armistice Day. And uh, I was struck by that juxtaposition, I guess. So the poem opens the book, Armistice Day. Now comes the moment before darkness when the river is the sky's purple mirror and the riverbank goes dark, the bridge goes dark, everything melts into nothing save the light that faces itself. As if it had come to an understanding, as if it were listening to logic, then very soon there's nothing to see. There's a certain immediacy there that I wonder how long it took you to arrive at this poem. Uh, because I think sometimes our minds arrive at things quicker than others, right? Mm-hmm. Was this something that just was kind of a spontaneous, you know, overflow of powerful emotion, to quote? Um, or did it take some time to really collect your thoughts and, and feel like, I can I can release this? You know, it's. I think it's a bit of a combination. I, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, I know that I had been watching that river reflect the last light of the of the day in the sky and thinking about how they they looked so much like each other you know this this pool of light on the ground at the river and then this little bit of light up high and then around you know all this darkness in between and i already felt that that was sort of metaphorically rich and interesting and 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 beautiful and i had started to write about that phenomenon and then after the attacks happened um i thought that the uh the fact that i had begun the poem on this day that marks you know, a cessation of hostility, um, um, and felt this uh, sort of ominousness. You know, it felt uh, not prescient. I don't mean like ESP. I knew that bad things were coming, but I, I, I do mean that it. I, I began to see how, um, you know, that was related to the the mood um, in the wake of that um, that violence and that sense that the book opens with of you think you've made an agreement or you think you have a, a solution and then you find that doubt creeps in or that, um, um, you know, it's gone wrong. That felt a- appropriate to how the, the book was unfolding and, and, a, and, and like a good way to begin. And so I think, you know, at, at different times I was focused on different elements of this poem um, and, and 
it came together as it did in the end because of the the combination of um, just what I happened to see in the landscape and then the things that followed in the political world. This observational power is difficult, I think, to teach someone. And I'm kind of curious your method and approaches to teaching this, after all, to young, inspiring poets. How do you approach that? Because for some people, things, I think, in many ways seem obvious, and they don't investigate what they take in that seems obvious to them. Does that make sense? Yes, I think that's that's a, a great way of, of talking about it because one of the things that we often feel in teaching writing is that students don't trust their attention and they sometimes worry that they have to make it more dramatic than it was, which is, you know, which can be true, but um, um, that the way that they do that is oftentimes leads to a kind of uh, uh, overwriting and and that that the best writing comes more from a, a kind of letting go of control and, uh, and and sculpting and letting yourself follow the language that you know each word as it comes along and be sort of open and receptive and listening and I think a lot of teaching creative writing is really is teaching reading and teaching attentiveness and teaching listening and um, and letting them teaching them how to listen to themselves and hear where they're different from from uh, the language that's ready to hand that comes to anybody right away um, so that they can say things that only they can say. We're speaking with Sally Ball, author of the newest collection, Hold Sway, which uh, is available in multiple ways. Uh, I wonder if you have another one that you might read for us. This poem is called First Elegy. The night my grief passed through me most completely, I was making dinner. I had lit the grill and reached as ever to give a quick metallic scrub, and then I realized you were ash. It was the day, however many days after your death, they'd said cremation would take place, which hadn't struck me until the puff of these ashes in their shining chamber flung at me the knowledge of your body gone, incinerated, no mistake, no hope. Me, a zero, stuffed with breath. A swarm of tears and cries like none that I had ever made hauled through me, hauled my soul, my presence of mind, my poise, my being anyone at all into a place of menace, the place where losing you meant losing everything about the way I see makes sense. So I learned what the words mean in accounts we always blandly read of ululation, dull, eviscerating words, racked. My husband, now my oldest man, observed in awe, and the way he knows me also changed. He was a cleat, and I was the boat, roped but thrashing the rope. You left me, who made the world seem safe, who aren't even a bone anymore. Your mottled mica skin that tore itself in those last days. How quickly it must have crinkled up and gone. I'm assuming that was a painful poem to to write. It was, yeah. It took a lot of uh, digging deep. Um, And it represents a fairly traditional form, the elegy, that is. Um, Do you find that 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 form sometimes gives you the the comfort to really get to those deeper places? It gives you a a kind of, uh, I don't know, a kind of a skin that you can wrap yourself inside of? I don't know if I think it's a comfort or a or a protection, but I do think that when we're writing, oftentimes you have this one thing you know you need to think about or write about or want to say or something like that, and the poem isn't going to come or it's not going to find its 
its right footing without some other element uh, coming along. And sometimes that other element is form. Um, and sometimes that other element is is metaphor, you know, something that that you know, some other um, image or or even a little other narrative that comes in. And then I say to my students, it takes two sticks to make a fire, right? You have the stick, you know, you need to write about, and then this other thing comes along, and then you've got two things, and together you can get that spark, and you can get something going on that's um, interesting enough to 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 be a poem, um, because not every every little story or every every deep, you know. Uh, experience um, is interesting anecdotally until or it is anecdotally but not as art not as a poem until you've kind of found where the tension is and where the surprises are as far as how to get a hold of your work, how can folks do so? The book is available for sale at the sort of usual places. You can get it at, in Phoenix at Changing Hands. Uh, you can get it uh, online from Barrow Street, the publisher, and Amazon has it, and I think all the usual ways. That was Sally Ball, ASU Associate Professor of English. Her new collection of poems is entitled Hold Sway, and that's a wrap for another episode of Word. We'll be back soon for a final homage to National Poetry Month. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.